turn your Bible, please, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you will follow with me, please, in this chapter, we want to read, we're going to just uh, read a number of verses from chapters 2 and 3. And I'll give you the verse number as we read along, so just have your Bible open, please. May we bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for the wonderful truth that Jesus is real. He is a reality, and He's not just some philosophy or a religion, but He is a way of life. And Jesus is alive today, and we give You the honor and glory for that. We pray that in this hour, Christ will be exciting in our lives, that Thou wilt lift burdens of people whose hearts are heavy, and that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will experience a want-to for revival, and those who are lost will be touched and moved by the Holy Spirit and drawn to Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Reading in Revelation, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them who are evil. And thou hast tried them who say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast had patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Verse 8, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, who was dead and is alive. Verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. You shall be tried many days, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. But be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. In verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These things saith he who hath the sharp sword with two edges. Verse 14, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat these things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Verse 18, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine bronze. Verse 20, Notwithstanding I have a few things against thee, because thou allowest that woman Jezebel, who calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, therefore, and strengthen the things which remain, 
that are ready to die, for I have not found them thy works perfect before God. Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Verse 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Jesus founded the church when he was here in the days of his flesh. The first mention of the founding of the church is in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus had called his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. He began to say to them, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? Some said, Well, some people believe you're John the Baptist, or you're one of the prophets, or you're Elijah. And Jesus said, But who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Thus Jesus introduces the ministry of his church. And Jesus and his disciples made up the first church. And Jesus said, I give to that church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The key is the message of deliverance the message that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the study, we'll make this special study in Sunday school next Sunday morning. In that chapter, Paul said, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. That's the message of the church. And that's the message that will unlock the door. If I had a key in my hand today, <clears throat> it was a key to my car. And I'd say uh, uh, to Roger, Roger, here's the key to my car, that, and I want you to go to Nashville. Uh, or you can go to California, go anywhere you want to. It's full of gas and full of oil, and it's a good car, and it'll make the whole trip. Here's the key. Well, obviously, he knows that he's got the key. He's got the, my permission to use the car, and he can go anywhere he wants to go with it. Now, the key to heaven is the message that unlocks the door of heaven. And that key is the grace of Jesus Christ, the message concerning the grace that was in God at Calvary when Christ gave his life a ransom for the sins of the world. That's the message. And you and I have that message. Now, let's see what happened to it. <clears throat> there were many churches by the time the end of of the first century had come. 
God particularly allowed John the Apostle to be the last man who knew Jesus in the days of his flesh to be alive. Peter, they tell us, was crucified upside down. We know that the Apostle Paul was beheaded in the city of Rome. They tell us that Bartholomew and Thomas and all of the other apostles were killed as martyrs of the faith. But God permitted John to live out to the end of the first century. And by that time, the gospel of Christ had spread all around the then known world. And there were churches in every place around the world. John was given the vision that now makes up the book of Revelation when he was in the Isle of Patmos, exiled for preaching the word of God. And Jesus gave a special message through John to the church of that day, the churches through the ages, and the church of the latter day. The seven churches we just read about in Revelation 2 and 3 were real churches in that day, the church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, the church at Pergamum, the church at Thyatira, the church at Sardis, the church at Philadelphia, the church at Laodicea, seven churches. But that doesn't mean that there were only seven churches in that day, but these are representative churches of that age. And they are also representative churches throughout all the ages. In every age, there have been churches like those. They also represent the ages of the church age itself. The first church in the first century left its first love. The second church was under persecution. The third church was filled with doctrinal hypocrisy and uh, forth and, uh, and, and false teachings and so on. Clear to the last church, the church of our age, the church of the Laodiceans, a church that is lukewarm. Now, if we're to have revival, if the church of the living God in this earth is to have revival, if Glendale Baptist Church is to be part of this revival, we need to see that which will make for perennial revival because God does not want spiritual spurts. He wants a church that is a literal flame of fire all the days of the week and all the Sundays of the year and all the years until Christ shall come. Now, any church can get worked up into a white heat and you can have some kind of a meeting going on and uh, really, uh, you know, have a lot of excitement there and... Uh, you can go out to that meeting and really get blessed. And then you go back when that meeting's over and there's nothing going on there. That isn't God's will. God wants his church to be a flame of fire always, marching on Satan's kingdom and going out with the gospel of Christ to win men and women and boys and girls and snatch them as brands from the burning and bring people to Christ. Now, if all that's true, how is it to be done? The churches we read about, the church at Ephesus was active. It was sound in doctrine, but it was deficient in love. The church at Pergamos stood firm in the midst of Satan's crowd, and yet there was heretical doctrine involved in it. The church at Thyatira was filled with good works and love, but there were false prophets there. The church at Sardis had a name of being alive, but in reality it was dead. And the church at Laodicea was lukewarm. It wouldn't hurt anybody's feelings. It just sort of dwelled and it sort of 
put out the name of Jesus, but it was so watered down and lukewarm that it wouldn't hurt anybody's feelings. It was neither hot nor cold. And Jesus said, because you're not hot or cold, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I can't stand that kind of church. Matter of fact, that's the only church in the New Testament that made Jesus sick. And there are lots of churches like that today. I don't believe God wants his church to be lukewarm. Somebody said, nobody mad, nobody glad, no meeting. When you come together on the Lord's day, and when a church can so stand so wishy-washy that everybody says that's a great, wonderful, wonderful church, boy, they don't hurt nobody's feelings. They don't preach no doctrine or nothing. When a church can be like that, it's not a New Testament church. The church of the living God rubs people, either bringing them into the kingdom of God and helping them to get into the message of the Word of God, or people don't like it. They talk about it. They criticize it. They don't like it at all. And that's the way it was in the New Testament era. Now let's look for a moment. There are only two of these churches that were pleasing to God. If you'll study carefully Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you'll find there were only two. The church at Smyrna, it was poor, but it was rich. And the church at Philadelphia, that church was loyal, and it had an open door. The church of Smyrna, everybody talked against it. It went through tribulation. It was poor. Jesus said, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. The church at Philadelphia kept the word of God and was loyal to the Lord. And Jesus said, I'll give you an open door. I'll give you an open door. I don't know about you. <clears throat> But after years of studying the Word, and after years of looking in to what makes up a church, I would like to say, I would like for Glendale Baptist Church to be like the church at Philadelphia. The church with an open door. The church that's loyal to the Word of God. The church that God says, all right, the door's open, you go and get them. Go bring them and retrieve them from Satan and from sin. Now, how's that to be? How's a church going to be in perennial revival? How are we going to be prepared to do something great that God wants done in the earth? If I have time, I want to name six things this morning. I'll go as far as I can in the time we have. Number one, the church that Christ will bless is the church whose members will take Christ seriously in living a separated life. In 2 Corinthians 6, <clears throat> verse 17, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now the church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum for saints. And the door of the church, when we meet on Sunday, and on Wednesday and in revival meetings is always open to everyone. I've heard some people say, well, I'm not going to go to church because I'm not worthy to go to church. None of us is worthy to go to church. None of us is worthy to come into the, into the presence of the Lord. We don't come to the presence of the Lord because we're worthy. We come because we're sick and we need what Christ can give us. We come to get spiritual nourishment. Wouldn't it be silly for me to have my car go 
just down to the last ounce of gasoline and I say, I'm not going into a filling station until I've got enough gas in there so I'll be worthy to go in that gas station. Well, that's silly. Well, I go to church, not because I'm worthy, but because I go there, it's a fuel station where I can get refueled. By the same token, however, Christ wants his people to be able to be put on display before the world when we go outside the church. The real hypocrites are not the people that come to church who have sins in their lives and have needs in their lives. And I believe that God wants the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners and the adulterers and the thieves to come into God's presence so they can hear the word of God. Don't let anybody ever say that you're not worthy to go to church. Now on the other side, I believe God wants his people when we go outside the church, out to the factories, out to the school, out to the stores, out where we work, out where, where we do what we do in life. That's where Christ wants our lives to burn high. If we know the Lord, then let's serve him. Let's be a people peculiar unto himself, a people zealous of good works, a people filled with the Holy Spirit. What the community thinks of the church is what they think of the individuals who make up the church. And if you and I come here and we read the word of God and we yield our lives to Jesus Christ and we become part of the kingdom of God and then we go on the outside and live tawdry, cheap, puny, petty, little, dwarfed lives that are filled with all kinds of sin. The people on the outside will say that's what that church is like. And so the Lord will bless the church whose individual people will take seriously what he says, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. We need to live separated, godly, holy lives unto him. Those who are saved, those who are the people of God need to live this kind of life. And God will bless. Secondly, and you know, you can't, you can't make everybody speak well of you, so don't worry about that. Everybody is going to have some enemies. If you don't have any enemies, you don't stand for anything. Remember that. If you're just sort of a jolly good jellyfish fellow, and you're with a crowd that cusses and swears and snorts, and you... <laughs> Isn't that funny? And you're over here with a crowd that talks seriously about the things, going, yes, sir, I think God is great. If you're that kind of a person, and I won't tell you, you're not much. You're just not much. God wants his people to stand for something. And when you stand for something, you're going to have enemies. Do you think policemen are always loved? Why do they call them pigs? And I resent that, but why do they do that? Because policemen try 
to stand for that which is lawful and legal. And do you think that you as a Christian can go through life and you really stand for something and you'll never have any enemies? No, no, you'll have enemies. And people will talk about you. Uh, you know, you can't please everybody. I get amused sometimes at what people say to me. They say, Preacher, you make every service, you preach everything to lost people. The whole service, everything you preach is just evangelism and to lost people. And then somebody else will come along and say, Preacher, I don't understand why you don't ever preach any evangelistic sermons. Everything you preach is to Christians and to save people. <laughs> well, that's a funny thing, see? Well, the truth of it is, I try to preach to Christians. And then I try to get the Christians to go out themselves and preach to the lost during the week and bring the saved people, bring those who've been saved in here so they can make professions of faith and get going for God. But the Lord, you know, you just can't please everybody. It make any difference what you do. So what we need to decide is who do we want to please? Do we want to please Jesus? Or do we want to please everybody? If you want to please everybody, you'll probably end up at Hopkinsville. What we need to do is just say, Lord, I'm going to please you. I'm going to be your servant. And I'm going to come out from the world and be separate unto God. I'm going to serve the Lord. Secondly, I told you I don't know how far I'll get. But secondly, Christ will bless the church whose members are faithful and dependable to the Lord. What kind of a home would you have if Daddy came home once a, every Easter? <laughs> He'd come home on Easter. Oh, I'm so looking forward to Easter because Daddy's going to be home. Oh, he doesn't come any the other time. He's out with the Polly and Mary and Harry and this person and all the other people. But on Easter he comes home. Isn't it great? And you have a great celebration. No, that wouldn't be anything. Well, neither, neither is the church much when uh, all it has is the people that come there on Easter. We need to be faithful to the Lord Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and Sunday. And then we need to be faithful in our attendance at the Lord's house on Sunday and Wednesday Three to thrive, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, all through, and be dependable and faithful so that Christ can receive the honor, the strength of the church. We need to be faithful to the Lord Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and Sunday. And then we need to be faithful in our attendance at the Lord's house on Sunday and Wednesday, three to thrive, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, all through, and be dependable and faithful so that Christ can receive the honor. The strength of the church is underscored by the dependability and faithful of her, fellow, of her members. Thirdly, Christ will bless the church that tithes. Over in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive. The church that tithes, God will bless. When there are people who will say, Christ is so important in my life, that I'm going to put him on the throne of my life and he will be first. And when I get a paycheck, 
the first thing that comes out of that paycheck goes to God's people, God's work, the work of the Lord for the spread of the gospel here and around the world. God will bless that kind of church, and there's no end to what can be accomplished. Fourthly, Christ will bless the church that has a missionary zeal at home and around the world and a soul-winning heart of love that seeks to reach the lost. Jesus said, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Acts 1.8, ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Christ wants his church to have a soul-winning zeal. What a blessing we had this past week to be confronted with the men who spoke at the evangelism conference, Brother Lonnie Mattingly, Brother Ed Snyder on Tuesday afternoon, Brother J.H. Taylor, Dr. Burhans, Dr. J. Roy Weber, others, and almost without exception, we were challenged by these men, men who know Christ and love him, what a challenge to confront every human being with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everywhere we go to tell people about Christ. We, we tend to segment missions. We say in December we'll push the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for world missions, foreign missions. We say in March we'll push the Annie Armstrong offering for home missions. And then some other time we'll push an offering for state missions. And then some other time we'll offering for associational missions and all that. And all that's good. I'm not complaining about it. But I'm simply saying missions is the mission of the church to take the gospel everywhere. And God has laid upon the hearts of this church the importance of taking the glorious gospel to every person in this city. It's hypocrisy to get all worked up and concerned about the people in Japan and have nothing, no concern about the people who live next door to us. I think you've heard of Dr. Edelman's story. Leo Edelman, who is now, who was once president of the New Orleans Baptist Seminary, once president of Georgetown Baptist College, taught in the Louisville Seminary. Dr. Edelman was a missionary in, in Palestine. He lived there for 10 years. And one day he went into a drugstore in Jerusalem and sat down to get something at the drugstore and, and a Jew came in, sat next to him and uh, Dr. Edelman began to tell him about Jesus and witness to him about Christ. And that Jew looked at him and said, you stop just a minute. He said, do you mean to tell me you've come thousands of miles from, from the United States? You've come over here to tell people in Israel about Jesus? Dr. Edelman said, yes, that's the reason I'm here. He said, that's hypocrisy. He said, I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio for 10 years, one block from a Baptist church, and nobody ever once came and told me about Jesus. And then you come thousands of miles to tell me about Jesus here? I don't understand that. You see, the church of the living God needs to be concerned about people wherever they are, here and to the ends of the earth. And that's the church that Christ will bless. And everybody won't like it. 
It's a lot easier to give our money and send our money and send missionaries, representatives overseas somewhere out of our sight so they can go and have all the hardships and difficulties themselves. But when we ourselves get involved in it, oh, preacher, all you ever do is tell us to go visiting. I get disgusted about that. All you ever do is preach on soul winning. The Word of God tells us that we're under divine mandate to go and knock on the doors and go and confront people in love. I don't mean in ugliness. I don't mean in a Holy Joe attitude, but in love, constraining them to come to Jesus. Last of all, the church that Jesus will honor and bless is the church that will follow his example. In Luke 4, I think we have one of the most beautiful insights of the example of Jesus in the whole Bible. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. Listen to this. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. He had a six-fold mission. Listen to what it was. Christ, he said, God hath sent me first to preach the gospel to the poor, to the disadvantaged. The Lord wants us to get the gospel to the poor. Who was it in the day in which Christ lived that gladly received the word largely was poor people, and then it spread to the rich? Christ again wants us to go and get the gospel out to the poor, to the disadvantaged, and to tell them that Jesus is mighty to save and he can lift the man, that a man's worth more than the car he drives. He's worth more than the house he lives in. He's worth more than the clothes he wears. He's worth, in he's worth, he's invaluable to the Lord. We can never place a price upon the soul of man because he's so important. Jesus came all the way from heaven to earth to die for his sins. That's our message. Secondly, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. There are so many broken people, so many people who live right on the verge of tears. Have you ever, have you ever had a tragic sorrow come into your life and you were able to grope with it, you were able to get along with it, you were able somehow to come out of that valley and get back into the routine of life and to go on and to pick up the broken pieces and get to work again but somehow you lived right on the verge of tears. It didn't take very much to call those tears all out again. That's brokenness. And there are so many people all around who are broken, brokenhearted. And this word says that the church of the living God is to go and heal the brokenhearted. What's the healing message for the brokenhearted? Jesus. 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 There's something about that name. Jesus heals the brokenhearted. He has sent me furthermore to preach deliverance to the captives, those who are bound in the shackles of habits. Christ says you can be free. You don't have to keep on cursing. You don't have to keep on drinking. You don't have to be bound by the habits of uh, shackles of habits and sins. You can be freed because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of the dynamite of God unto to deliverance to everyone who will believe. And furthermore, the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty them that are bruised. 
and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the message. And that's what I'm saying to you today. If you're here today and you're brokenhearted, Christ wants to heal your broken heart. He weeps with you. If you're here today and you're in the chains of habits and sins and you think you can't escape, you can't get out, you've gotten cornered and you can't get out of it, I have good news for you. Christ breaks those shackles and he'll free you today. If you're here today and you say, well, someday I expect to be saved. Some other time, not today, but some other hour, the message of the Word of God, the message of Christ, the message of this church to you is today is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You don't have any promise of tomorrow. This other week, I, 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 I was with a family where the 39-year-old husband died like that of a heart attack. On another day, a young 18-year-old boy had a heart attack and died. We do not know how long we have. The acceptable year of the Lord is today. If you're here without Christ, I beg you, I beseech you in Jesus' name to come to him. May we pray. Every head bowed, eyes closed. Our Father, thank you for the opportunity of being in God's house today. We pray that somebody here who has put off salvation, not today, I'll get saved by and by, will come to Christ right now and open his heart and life and mind to Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Will you stand, please? Now, no one, please, leaving. This is God's invitation. I'd like to request that we not leave during the invitation. This is God's moment in your life. If you're here today without Jesus, you've never received him as your personal Savior, I want to plead with you to come to Christ right now. You may say, well, I've put it off, and I've put it off, and I, I'm just going to wait till a more convenient season. God brought you here for this hour. This is the hour for which you were born. I want to urge you to be the first to step out in the aisle. Just come quickly and say, I'm giving my heart to Christ. There are others who ought to move their membership to this church today. You've been planning. You've been thinking about it. Today is God's day. There are others who have been saved in your home, but you've not made it public. You need to step out from where you are and come confessing Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then, as soon as possible, follow the Lord in believer's baptism. You ought to do that today for Christ's sake. While we begin to sing, who will be the first to come? Quickly, will you come?